I invite you to turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, we'll be looking at the first 10 verses this evening together. And so I'll read those 10 verses for us. But before I do that, as always, brothers and sisters, I remind you that what we're about to hear read is the word of the living God. And so may we receive these words from him, even as he graciously and lovingly provides them to us. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. But the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's thank him for it and ask him to bless it to us. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we long to rightly know you and thus to understand your word. And so we pray that you would cause our hearts to be free from the distraction of worldly affairs during this time, that we might truly hear and understand what your Spirit is saying to us as your people, the church. We desire, Lord, to attend to your word with all diligence and faith so that we might discern your will and cherish it And live by it with all earnestness, all to the praise of your honor and glory. 
We ask that you help us to that end. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as I was reflecting on and studying the first 10 verses of Revelation chapter 19, it struck me that many of my favorite stories, and I'm probably not alone in this, many of my favorite stories end in weddings. And so if you think of a story like Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, book one, it ends with St. George, the Red Cross Knight, defeating the dragon and then marrying Una, his love, whom he delivered from this dragon, her and her family. Or if you think of, probably one you're a little bit more familiar with, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, right? There's a lot of combat, if you will, a lot of miscommunication, misunderstandings, but eventually Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy end up together, and it ends in a wedding. Or you can think of almost any of Shakespeare's comedies. They end in weddings. Or you can think of, while it doesn't end in a wedding specifically, you can think of the Odyssey by Homer. Odysseus makes his journey home, slaughters all of the enemies in his path, and while it doesn't end in a wedding, he is reunited with his wife at the end of it all. And I think it's not a coincidence that that's the case for us, that a lot of the stories that we love, a lot of the stories that have endured end in weddings because all of history, brothers and sisters, ends in a wedding. After the Lord Jesus Christ has destroyed all of his enemies, then the time comes for him to marry his bride, to marry the church, to marry his people. And that's exactly what we're seeing celebrated here in the first 10 verses of Revelation chapter 19. We're going to see that the people of God rejoice and worship him and praise him for what he's done in destroying his enemies on the one hand and then marrying his people on the other. And so those are the two points, very simply, that we're going to look at tonight. First of all, in verses 1 through 5, we're going to look at how we are to praise God because he crushes his enemies. He crushes Babylon, and so we ought to praise him for that. And then second of all, we ought to praise God because he marries his people. And we'll look at that in verses 6 through 10. And again, the intent of this pastorally is that we might be encouraged to, as the angel tells John here at the end of verse 10, to worship God and praise him and remain faithful to him until the end. So let's look first then at how we are to praise God for how he crushes his enemies. Look at verse 1 with me of Revelation 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So John is relaying to us the next thing that he sees in his vision here. And this comes on the heels of the destruction, the downfall, the judgment of Babylon. We saw that that was the focus of the vision beginning at the very tail end of chapter 16, when the seventh bowl is poured out and God remembers Babylon and he pours out his wrath upon her. And then we get a more expansive view of that. We saw that in chapters 17 and 18, what this downfall or judgment of Babylon actually looks like. And if you recall, at the tail end of chapter 18, 
the people of God in the heavens, the glorified saints, are actually commanded to rejoice over her, that is Babylon, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. And so now we see the heavens actually obeying that command in the first 10 verses of chapter 19. And so the heavens erupt in thanking and praising God for his judgment of Babylon, his judgment of his enemies and the church's enemies. And so what do they say? They say, hallelujah. And this is the first time this word pops up in the New Testament. It's a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word that essentially just means praise God, praise Yahweh in the highest. You see it particularly in the Psalms. It's Hebrew equivalent where the psalmists employ it to praise God for how he's defeated their enemies. And John is employing it in the same way in the mouths of the glorified saints in heaven, saying hallelujah. And what are they ascribing to God as they cry out? Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. The salvation of God has come. And the only way that salvation could come, in part, is if the enemies of God and the enemies of his people are crushed. And that's what's happened in the fall of Babylon. The world and its system, as it is opposed to God, has now been crushed. And so what's ascribed to God? Salvation, glory, and power belong to him alone. Which I think is so important for us to note because you remember what Babylon was trying to convince the earth dwellers of. And many of them believed her. That she had power. That she had glory. That she could grant to them salvation. That she could grant to them prosperity and security. And what we're shown here is that her promises were empty lies. Because she lies in ruins. As do all those who follow her. But God has delivered his people. And so to him belong salvation and glory and power. They go on to sing God's praises in judging his enemies in verse 2. So let's look there. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So God's people, the glorified saints in heaven, are praising him saying, we've seen what you've done and Lord, we give our approval. Not that the Lord needs it, but we know that your judgments on Babylon because of her corruption, her immorality, the way that she has led the nations in this, you've rightly judged her and your judgments are true and just, O oh God, because you are true and just. Your actions reflect your character. And so they're praising him. And notice also that they say at the very end there of verse 2, and you have avenged on her, that is Babylon, the blood of his servants. We remember back in Revelation chapter 6, the martyrs are crying out, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? And now the Lord has done it. The Lord has heard the prayers of his people. He's answered the prayers of his people. And now his people are praising him for what he's done in causing the judgment and downfall of Babylon. They go on to sing there in verse 3. Look there with me. Once more they cry out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So they're saying, praise God. Why? Because the judgment and destruction of Babylon is final. There's not going to be any 
rising from the ashes like a phoenix for Babylon. Her defeat is final and it is eternal. You know this imagery, you understand this imagery that John is using here. Because if you're anything like me, when you're driving around town and you see smoke on the horizon, you go, oh no, there's a fire over there. And I find myself anyways praying, Lord, be with whoever is involved in it. Protect them. Be with the firemen. May they get it under control quickly. And what's the telltale sign that the destruction, the fire has stopped? The smoke stops, right? You don't see the smoke rising in the sky anymore. And so what John is saying is here is her destruction will never cease. Her rebellion and sin against God deserves an eternal, infinite punishment. Because her sin is against an infinite and eternal God. And so, this is not a temporary defeat. This is a full and final, complete defeat from which she will never spring back again. And it's not just enough for the people of God to respond in praise. Note here that we have all creation then responding in verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. And the 24 elders... And the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen and Hallelujah. So now you have these 24 elders. Remember, they're around the throne of God, as well as the four living creatures. And they give their approval of God's judgment of Babylon as well. And you remember from Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we saw that the 24 elders and the four living creatures, the 24 elders represent the people of God, and the four living creatures represent all creation. So you have all creation joining here in the praise and worship of God for his judgment of Babylon and her destruction. Then we hear a voice come forth from the throne. Look there at verse 5. We read, and from the throne there came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Now the question we might be asking ourselves is, well, whose voice is this that's coming from the throne? Now if you're going to push me to make my best guess, I think it's most likely Christ, right? It's coming from the throne. Who's seated on the throne? The Father and the Son, the Lamb who was slain. And so I think what we see here is Jesus leading his people in the praise of God. He's leading the congregation in the worship of God. But we don't ultimately know. It could be one of the 24 elders. It could be one of the four living creatures. But what we do know is they're calling on God's servants, all those who fear him, small and great, to praise God. And so they do. And I think it's really significant that the servants of God are described as those who fear him. Because brothers and sisters, we're to understand that the reason that we remain faithful to God by his grace is because we fear him. And the reason that we'll endure through these incredibly trying times between Christ's first and second coming, the latter days that we're in right now, the reason that we'll endure is because we don't ultimately fear Babylon. We don't fear what she can take away from us. We don't fear what she can give to us that we might miss out on if we don't bow the knee. And we don't fear what the beast can do to us, either what he can threaten to take away or promise to give. We don't fear ultimately ungodly government as it's opposed 
to God. We don't ultimately fear the flesh and the world and the devil. Who do we fear? By his grace, when he's given us the gift of faith, he's given us the fear of him. And so we actually live out what Jesus commanded us to do, to not fear the one who can destroy your body, but fear the one who can throw your body and soul into hell. We tremble before our God, not just for that reason, not just because of his power and his might and his holiness, but because of the grace and mercy and love he has shown us in his son. And so we revere him. We love him. We loathe the thought of disappointing him because he is our gracious, loving, heavenly father. And so we fear him and by his grace, we endure until the very end. So we've looked at how the saints praise God for his crushing his enemies. What's some application that we can make to ourselves from this text this evening? Well, I want to make two applications very briefly. They're ones that we've talked about before in the past, but First of all, we should not grow weary, brothers and sisters. And I know it's easy to do. We should not grow weary in waiting for God's justice. Right? Because it seems to be so long in coming, doesn't it? It seems to be so, Lord, where's your justice? Where's your justice when millions of babies are slaughtered in the womb and our government gives its stamp of approval and think it's doing something righteous by defending people's quote-unquote right to do that? Where's your justice, O Lord? Where's your justice, O Lord, when we read publications like Voice of the Martyrs and we read how your people, your children in other parts of the world are persecuted and suffer and die? Where is your justice, O Lord? And so we're not to grow weary because we know when Jesus returns, he will exact justice. And so don't give in to the temptation that we all experience at times to take matters into your own hands, right? The Lord is very clear. Vengeance is mine, not yours. You can't, you don't have the power or the wisdom, nor do I, to exact justice as it ought to be exacted. And so our sense of justice and the power with which we would be able to carry that out, first of all, we'd carry it out probably incorrectly, and we wouldn't be able to exact it. And so we're to relinquish that to God. Now, don't misunderstand me. We are to pursue justice insofar as we possibly can. But if you've lived for any amount of period of time on this earth, you know that there are more miscarriages of justice, even within the justice system, than there are justice oftentimes being upheld. And so how are we to respond to that? We're to respond to that by entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly, the Lord himself. And no, he will bring justice and it will reign supreme when Jesus returns. So don't give in to the temptation to try to take it into your own hands. And secondly, very briefly, we ought to have this picture of the smoldering carcass of Babylon firmly in our hearts and minds when we start to feel enticed and allured by the flesh and the world and the devil. When our hearts are pulled in that direction, it's as if our imagination should be so filled with these symbols from Revelation that it's almost like we smell smoke. We know where this ends up. This ends up in death. It ends up in destruction giving way to sin. And so I'm not going to go down that road. 
Now, don't get me wrong, the best defense against the attacks of the flesh and the world and the devil are a robust fellowship and communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But this is one of the weapons we have in our arsenal. When we feel our hearts being dragged in the direction of the flesh and the world and the devil, we're to remind ourselves, the end of Babylon is destruction. And so is the end of all of those who walk in her ways. And so may we remind ourselves of that. Remind ourselves of what John says in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, that the world is passing away along with its desires. They're fleeting. They can give you a little pleasure, a little relief, but they end ultimately in destruction. And so we ought to remind ourselves of that in light of this incredible vision that we're given. So we've seen how we are to praise God and how the heavens will praise God for him crushing his enemies. Secondly, let's look at how we're to praise God for he marries his people. Look at verse 6 with me. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. So once again, very similar to verse 1, John hears a multitude crying out hallelujahs and praises to God. I want to just point out very quickly in passing, do you notice how our voices as glorified saints is described? Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. You know where John's used that language elsewhere in Revelation? God's voice, Jesus' voice, is described in the same way, isn't it? So what's being communicated to us here? Brothers and sisters, when we open our mouths, one of the ways that we reflect the glory and image of God and our communion with God is made manifest is that our words echo his words. When we sing, when we pray, when we speak, when we open our mouths, And when we sing in praise like this, there's a flavor of God's voice itself because we're echoing his words back to him. And that's exactly what's happening here. They're singing hallelujah for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Now let's dispel with some potential misunderstanding here. Okay, so is God only now reigning? He wasn't reigning before? Well, so let's distinguish. No, God always reigns in the sense that he is sovereign over all things. He ordains everything that comes to pass, even the small details of our lives, like the hairs that fall from our heads. That happens to some of us faster than others. But the Lord's in control of all of that. So that's not what John's saying here, that now the Lord is reigning. No, the Lord has always reigned in that way. But what the saints are praising God for here is that this epic struggle that has happened in the providence of God, in the eternal plan of God, ever since the fall, there's been this epic struggle between this city of God, those who are believers, the seed of the woman, Jerusalem, and Babylon, the city of man, the seed of the serpent, And this epic struggle has unfolded all throughout Scripture, all throughout history. And now, with the return of Christ, the city of man has been crushed and destroyed. And so now the kingdom of God that Jesus inaugurated in his first coming has now come in its fullness. The fullness of the kingdom has come. And so now the kingdoms of the world 
Revelation 11, verse 15, have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the saints are singing in praise of God for that. They go on to praise God, though, for two other things. So let's look at this here in verse 7. They continue to sing praises to God, saying, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. So the saints are saying we ought to rejoice, and so we are. We ought to exult and give God the glory for two things. First of all, the marriage of the Lamb that has now come, and the bride has made herself ready. These are the occasions for their rejoicing. And so let's look first at the marriage of the Lamb. First question, who's the Lamb? We already know from other places in Revelation, particularly chapters 4 and 5, the Lamb is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we know from the Old Testament, again and again, the Lord talks about the fact that he has betrothed himself to his people. Think of places like Hosea chapter 2, Isaiah 54. The Lord has betrothed himself to his people, to the church, And one day, that betrothal will end and terminate in a marriage, in a wedding, in the union of God and his people. And now the time for that has come. And so there's this imagery that's being used, and Jesus uses it throughout the Gospels. In the days of the biblical writers in the ancient world, the way that betrothal and weddings worked is the fathers worked out the betrothal process, the arrangement, And then eventually, when the bridegroom got older, he started to build a house onto his father's house. And then the father would say, all right, son, you've built enough. Go get your bride. And the bride was preparing herself. She didn't know when the bridegroom was going to arrive. And so she'd be preparing herself and getting ready. And then when the bridegroom would arrive, the wedding would take place, and there would be this consummation of this betrothal process. And that's exactly what is being talked about here, brothers and sisters. Behold, as we heard about a little bit this morning in the sermon at morning worship, behold the love that our God has for us, that the Father has given us as the bride of Christ, the church, to Jesus and says, son, go get your bride. And he comes and you know that he's given us a seal. He's given us an engagement ring, if you will, in the Holy Spirit. Jesus accomplished our salvation doing everything necessary for us, living, dying. Then he rose to the Father's right hand and sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is that promise, I'm going to come back for you. Doesn't Jesus say this in John's gospel? I go to my Father's house, I'm preparing many rooms. And when the Father sends me, I'm going to come and I'm going to take you to be with me. And in the meantime, you have communion with God through the Holy Spirit, through Christ in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is like this engagement ring, right? In our culture, we don't do the betrothal process, but when a young man finds a young lady and talks to her parents and says, hey, I want to marry her and gets their approval, he goes and asks, she says yes, and he puts an engagement ring on her finger. And that engagement ring is a pledge, like, I'm going to marry you. This is going to happen. And we know that the brides, they do everything in their power to beautify themselves until that day, don't they? And they're looking forward to it with great anticipation. And this is the imagery that is being used here. And the marriage is culminated. So they're celebrating the marriage of the Lamb. 
the fullness of uh, expression of our communion with God and union with Christ. And then second of all, notice at the tail end of verse 7, and his bride has made herself ready. The church has prepared herself for Christ's return. That's what brides do as they wait for their wedding day. Well, what exactly does that look like? Well, look at verse 8 with me to see what it looks like for the bride to ready herself. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So how is she readying herself? Well, she's participating in righteous deeds. She's obeying the law of God. As she communes with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, she is being changed and conformed to the image of God. And that's reflected in her life in that she actually does righteous deeds, good works, issuing from faith in conformity to God's word. And I want you to notice, though, the gracious work that this is. Because look at the beginning of verse 8. We read, it was granted her to clothe herself. In the Greek, that's a divine passive. It was granted her. And so what is that telling us? That's a divine passive. It means that God is the one who has granted her to clothe herself with these good works. Not only is she clothed with the righteousness of Christ, which has graciously, lovingly been given to her, but it doesn't just end in justification. It issues forth in sanctification. There are good works a fruit that issues from that root of faith that God is graciously working in her. This is exactly what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 talks about. It says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so the bride of Christ, in preparing herself for her union with Christ, is living as her bridegroom would have her live. And this is in fulfillment, by the way, just very briefly, of a promise that God makes in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. And so this language is very closely tied to verses 7 and 8 of Revelation 19. Let me read Isaiah 61, 10 for you. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. Very similar language, by the way, to the beginning of verse 7 of Revelation 19. But here's what Isaiah 61, 10 goes on to say. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has done it. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Do you see how beautifully Jesus, as our husband, the husband of the church of Christ, just beautifully bedecks us with his righteousness and actual righteousness by conforming us to his image. And he will keep us until the very end. Behold the love that God has for us in all of its splendor. And so as a result of this, notice what the angel says to John then in verse 9. The angel says in verse 9, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. It's not hard to see this blessing, is it, as we look at this passage. 
We see the blessings that are ours in Christ. And yet, brothers and sisters, it's so important that we meditate on this because in this life, we know, even just from other places in Revelation, we're promised to suffer. We will suffer at the hands of our enemies. We will be persecuted. Jesus says, the servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, you're going to be persecuted as well. And so in the world's eyes, we're going to look despised like the scum of the earth. And yet, these are the true words of God. That because we have fellowship with God through Christ, that he has graciously given to us, we are blessed to not only be invited to the marriage of the Lamb, but actually be the bride of Christ in that marriage. Now, the glory of this is so great that notice John's response here in verse 10. This isn't the first time he has to be rebuked by an angel, and it's not the last time as he receives the revelation that he'll be rebuked by an angel. But we read, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, the angel, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John is so taken by the beauty that he beholds in this vision that he's tempted and not just tempted, but gives in to the desire to actually worship the messenger. Uh, It just literally blows him off his feet. And so he falls in worship of the angel. The angel says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I'm just a fellow servant with you. I'm just a mouthpiece carrying the revelation of Christ to you. But I am not God. Worship him, not me. But brothers and sisters, this is a warning for all of us. Uh, We have all experienced that burning in our hearts, have we not? When a gospel minister or a faithful Christian opens up the word and explains something to us that we've never understood before. And it's like the heavens open up. And when we're so thankful that we're almost tempted to idolize or worship them, and we're not to do that. We're to understand that they're just brothers like us, fellow servants, who are holding fast to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we're to, yes, fall on our knees, but in worship of God. Thanking him for the provision of such teachers in the church. But giving all praise and honor and glory to God And to God alone. So brothers and sisters, how do we apply the second point to ourselves? Well, I kind of want to answer the question. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I think it's really important. And I encourage you to reflect on this much throughout the rest of the evening and week. How do we prepare ourselves as as the bride of Christ? Because we're told here that that that's exactly what the bride does. She makes herself ready. Verse 7. And I think we're doing it right now as a matter of fact. (laughs) The way we ready ourselves as the bride of Christ is in corporate worship, in the morning and in the evening, and in family worship. Or if you're a single person and you're not participating in family worship, but private worship. As we read God's word, as we understand it rightly, as we understand right doctrine, as we sing, as we pray, as we evangelize, as we participate in the sacraments, do you understand that we're communing with God? And so by the very virtue of doing that and looking to him in faith, this is how we're readied. This is how we are 
beautified, meditating and reflecting on the glory of our God, the glory of our bridegroom, Christ. We're to meditate on that, reflect on how he has lovingly, graciously, gloriously saved us. And by his grace, walk in accord with his law, by the strength that the Spirit provides. And we're to reflect on that. And that this day is coming when he will crush our enemies and marry us to himself forever. That kind of communion and fellowship, the fullness of it that we were created for and that each and every one of us who is a believer here tonight longs for with all of our heart. So that's how we prepare ourselves. And another way, secondarily and very briefly, that we prepare ourselves is to understand, and this just comes up again and again in the book of Revelation, who's sovereign over all of these judgments that are poured out? The angels open, the seals are opened, the the bowls are poured out, the trumpets are blown in obedience to whose commands? God's commands. Christ's commands. And so we're to understand all of these sufferings that we will experience in these latter days. They are sent, provided for, given to us by our loving, gracious God, our loving, gracious bridegroom to prepare us for his return. He's using all the sufferings, all the circumstances of our lives to conform us more to his image, even as he washes us, Ephesians 5, and purifies us with his word. And so as we we look at our sufferings and we look at our losses and we look at our griefs, we're ultimately to understand that it's coming from the Lord's hand. It's coming from the hand of the one who has any bridegroom given more to his bride than Christ has to us in love. And so if he loves us that much, brothers and sisters, we can trust that even through the suffering and the loss and the grief, he is up to good for us in that. To conform us more to his image and to prepare us. It's part of the beautifying process. It's not what we would prefer But he knows better than we do. And so we're to receive it from his hand, knowing that he's preparing us to be united to him. So church, along with the saints, in glory, in anticipation of this coming day, let us rejoice now. Let us rejoice now in the final destruction of our enemies, the final union that we'll have with God Understanding all of history ends in a wedding. It ends in a marriage, being united to God forever in holy bliss and glory. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.